What is your name? Sakyang Miponbuchi. Occupation? Teacher, birth protector. How old are your children? Two and a half, four and a half, and six. What are their names? The youngest one is called Jason Zidrin, Jason Yudra, and uh, Jason Drukmo is the oldest one. Hi, this is Joshua David Stein. Welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. Today I sit down with the Sakyung Mipam Rinpoche, the spiritual leader of the Shambhala School of Buddhism and the author, most recently, of The Art of Good Conversation. So stakes are high. The Sakyung is actually a title, which means earth protector. So I was curious about how he balances protecting the earth with, you know, things like grocery shopping. Because how many times do you get to ask a holy man about what's on sale in aisle four? Also, of all father and son dynamics, I think the Sakyungs is one of the most interesting. His father, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, founded the Shambhala School of Buddhism in the 1970s. And sometime after he died, the Sakyung became the Dharma king and head of the lineage. For his part, the Sakyung was born in Bodhgaya, India, grew up with his mother in a Tibetan refugee village, studied in monasteries for much of his youth, then joined his father in America. Today, he lives outside Boulder, Colorado, with his wife and three daughters, though he continues to travel around the world, giving lectures and going on retreat. But you don't have to be a Buddhist to struggle with concepts like impermanence, aggression, and ego. Because nothing makes you realize your own ego as much as a six-year-old who thinks all your dance moves are dorky, or gazing into a mirror when you're middle-aged, or incites aggression like a kid who won't spread his fingers to put his gloves on. Just spread your fingers. But I was curious about how, as Dharma King and Dad, the Sakyung deals with things like this, and if he had any words of enlightenment for befuddled fathers like me out there. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. My name is Joshua David Stein. I hope you enjoy yourself. You are the Sakyung Mipam Rinpoche. Can you explain who you are to our listeners? Of course. Well, I'm delighted to be here. And, and uh, especially on this particular subject of fatherhood, because I'm a spiritual leader. I'm, I'm from uh, of a Tibetan uh, lineage or, or background and teach meditation and uh, try to engage in how to bring really spirituality and meditation and you know mindfulness and these activities into sort of daily life. So that's sort of certainly part of being a father. And you're also l- literally a father. I am. No, this is not figuratively. <laughs> My children think so, so yeah. Yeah. You are the head of the Shambhala tradition. That's right. Which was founded by your father. Yeah, my father was uh, Chogim Tongba Rinpoche, and he was a great spiritual leader in, in Tibet, and he ex- escaped you know, with, with uh, Tibetans in, in the late 50s, early 60s, and then was in India. He eventually went to um, study at Oxford University, and sort of assimilated to sort of Western thought and philosophy. He came to sort of a crossroads himself, how to take this wisdom that he was brought up in and then how to bring it further. And I think then he began to teach Buddhism in the West and teach meditation. So he was regarded as one of the sort of founding figures of this tradition. You were born in Bodh Gaya. That's right. In India. That's right. And live in Boulder. I do. I live in Boulder and I'm also, we're in um, Halifax, Nova Scotia. I was born in India and, you know, raised within that um, sort of culture. One of the interesting kind of journeys of my life has been sort of how to sort of be that bridge. I mean, it's, it's in terms of living in the West and teaching and also carrying on sort of the tradition and spirituality and, and sort of culture of um, sort of where I come from. You were raised in a monastic tradition in Tibet? 
and then you came here and it wasn't or was it was your training monastic because i know also you've been training as a buddhist for a long time <laughs> maybe your life <laughs> and still am and right? like lives before and yeah. you know well yeah i think a lot of the traditional training is in monasticism but i like for example in my tradition there's a family lineage which i'm part of so that really is passed down through the family there's also monastic lineages which are passed through monastic you know vows and so forth a lot of the training is in, in, in like in a monastery so i spent a lot of time in a monastery um educating and so forth as a kid as a kid and also uh, as an adult i went back and you know i spent um you know quite a few years uh, doing that training so that's part of the sort of the uh, background yeah so you're raising three kids mm-hmm. in the western world was your childhood at all like theirs? Did you have a childhood as we would imagine it with, you know, like playing around and just uh, kind of, you know? Or were- well, I think I traveled a lot because my father was moving. And so I was raised in India uh, with my mother. We were in a Tibetan refugee situation. And I think our whole culture was just trying to reground itself, basically. So I was raised in a much more different situation than my children now in the sense of they have more stability and in the sense of just sort of what is going on. But at the same time, you know, I think the values are there. And, you know, I think very much we're trying to raise our children so because they are bicultural. And we both speak Tibetan and English, and, and uh, they hear a lot of you know, different cultural aspects. In the culture you were raised, the kind of underlying values of Buddhism were part of the broader culture. Mm-hmm. And in the West, even though now I feel like when you like you go to a, a spa and there's like a picture of a Buddha head. Right, and, like, right. I, I noticed like, that. You see the head, but not the rest of the body. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the image of the Buddha has become part of the cultural mm-hmm. milieu, but right. probably the values, the deep-seated values of, I don't know, non-attachment and the idea of reincarnation in general aren't so much a part right. of it. Right. And being raised in a culture where those values are your values and of the culture versus right. a right. culture where the overall values are drastically different. You know, in Asia, it's the same thing. There's a lot of sort of just sort of modern materialism and so forth. Much more now in the modern context, because I think meditation is much more common, much more normal. I think Buddhism is understood to be sort of a deep tradition. At the same time, it sort of has this kind of cultural affectation where it's about being calm and these aspects. So which are true, but obviously people are not generally aware of the sort of the depth of the whole thing. So that is part of what we're trying to impart on children. I think they have a sense of of that depth just, you know, just through our sort of osmosis, you know. I think a lot of parents want to teach their kids the values of not being materialistic, sort of the values of selflessness as a dad myself. It's like I'm also trying to impart the idea of impermanence. You know, a pet dies or a grandparent dies or someone dies and you're trying to explain. Yeah. I think my grandfather died. And I was trying to explain it to my son and I was trying to explain to him about reincarnation and right. like, whatever. Uh-huh. And he was like, oh, well, then why can't I just kill Augie, who's his brother? Because uh-huh. he'll just be reincarnated <laughs> See, anyway. Right. It's like, uh, <laughs> I got to think on that. <laughs> right, right. Let's, yeah. let's back, back yeah. out of here. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, how do yeah. I find the exit <laughs> from that one? I mean, that was part of my inspiration to write my book, Lost Art of Good Conversation. I felt like part of raising your children is having these conversations because I travel extensively in the world and meet different traditions, and meet different people. And I realize there's there's a lot of just commonality of just how to bring your children up with just some, some decency, you know, and dignity and so forth. So I feel like that's something that's not necessarily uh, one culture. Then there's deeper issues like how do you explain, you know, rebirth? 
And, yeah. You know, and we have a whole courses on that, right? So yeah. <laughs> good, 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 good luck with that one. Yeah. They're entering into life, and they're so fragile, and there's so much happening, and it's very intense, you know, being a child. How do you guide them in that process? There's different ways of communicating. It's what you say, but there's just how you are with them, right? And so I think that's a lot of being with children is just sort of your general how you are as a person. And then that's also very testing. Like, you know, if you do have certain principles, like you're practicing mindfulness, and they say, oh, you're not being mindful. You know, your children immediately see that. Yeah. And, and Or you're not being patient. You, you have to do it. You can't just talk about it. The Fatherly Podcast is brought to you by Cheese Dippers by The Laughing Cow. Every kid's got an imagination all their own. Whether they're racing monster trucks, playing teacher, or dreaming of setting foot on Mars, even the wildest imaginations are hungry for more. Feed your kid's appetite for adventure with Cheese Dippers by The Laughing Cow. With perfectly crunchy breadsticks and creamy cheese, it's a crunchable, dippable, enjoy however you wantable snack that's always a favorite. Plus, it's made to go anywhere their imagination takes them. Cheese Dippers by The Laughing Cow. Snack like you. And now back to the show. A lot of other practitioners that I talk to who are parents, it's like, on one hand, you want to devote yourself to practice and go on retreats. And on the other hand, you just need to be there. How do you balance that obligation you have to the broader world with the obligations you have as a father at home? For myself, approaching it with some normalcy as opposed to I'm I'm leaving them and coming back. This is part of how life is. You know, it, it is a balance because there's a time where... Uh, you do want to be in more meditation and more retreat. I mean, for myself, it's been sort of balancing because I feel like, as you're saying, how you are with them when you are with them is so important. And so when I'm there, I try to be as much as I can be there. And uh, with that, when I do have to travel, you know, I try to bring them in as much. And they say, oh, are you going to go help people? And there's just some sort of connectivity as opposed to you just disappear. Yeah. To me, it's daily how you balance it. And also it's sort of annual, like what, what times of the year are doing a retreat? Because that does make you a stronger person or deal with what's going on. When your children are young, you're going to have to give up a lot of practice because yeah. you just have to be there. There may be times as you get older and your children are older, there's more gaps in the schedules. And you shouldn't forsake that because... You want them to see the spark in you and your inspiration to practice and to think about these important things in life. When I was seeing my father and realizing like, oh, the retreat was important and I'm inspired by that as opposed to he wasn't around or something. Yeah. When you were growing up, was your dad around that much? He was. You know, I mean, I think earlier on because, you know, I was sort of in Indian England. I went to England before coming to the States. And then later he would take me, you know, for his teaching and retreats as much as he could. So that was a big part of my upbringing was really, from a young age, being in that environment. How, as a child, did you balance that with just your dad being your dad? And how do your kids balance just you being dad versus you being the Sakyung Mipam <laughs> Earth Lord? You know, my father is a teacher, you know, and as a spiritual teacher. There was him as my father. And, uh, you know, sometimes the lines are very clear and sometimes the lines weren't so clear. You know, is this him talking to him as a father or is this him talking to him as a spiritual sort of being, right? To me, where they sort of met was just his sort of deep love and affection. That's the strongest thing that has remained with me, ultimately what inspires you and drives you. And there is all the training, there is all the the wisdom, and that's obviously incredibly important. But it's from a person. That's kind of what you're doing as a parent. You're raising your child as a parent, and they're yours from that point of view. At the same time, you're teaching them how to be a human being. You're you're teaching them or showing them what's important in life. So you are, in a sense, 
imparting spirituality as yeah. opposed to it's just how to eat and how to dress. One of the things that people always talk about when they, especially when they become parents is just, you know, having grow up because we're, we think we're still growing up and all of a sudden we're supposed to be adults, right? And so that's like a big wake up call. And so there is an aspect which is that, oh, I wonder what my parents were like. Did they go through the same thing yeah. as opposed to they had it all together? And you realize like, <laughs> probably not. Everyone is just <laughs> you know, figuring it out. Yeah. Out. Did you ever question whether you wanted to continue in your father's footsteps? From a very young age, I was always interested in meditation and, you know, however you want to think about it, whether it's karmic. But I always had personally, and that was something that was really important to me. And I would always ask my father about these things. And he was like, you should go play, right? You know, enjoy yourself now, right? And I never felt it was put upon me. I certainly felt the pressure, for sure. And it wasn't really like a conscious decision, I'm going to do this. But it felt more just sort of organic. When did you start meditating? When I was already four or five, we would sit in what we call pujas or ceremonies, and you would be involved in the, in the, in the practice that was going on. But it's sort of as a you know older, more conscious person where you know I'd have a regular sitting practice or meditation practice. I probably was like twelve or something. One of the things that I think is so nice about the lost art of good conversation is you talk a lot about obviously listening, but then allowing the person space to be themselves without mm -hmm. aggressively imprinting your own desires of the directions of a conversation, which makes it very self-conscious to be doing a <laughs> podcast with you, but it is what it is. Um, but, you know, as parents, I end up having a lot of conversations. I have a four right. and a five-year-old. Talking to kids is interesting because they're nonlinear and you right. just kind of have to sit there and right. you let them lead it. If you try to push too hard one way or the other, it just... right. No, exactly. It crumbles. Do you think having conversations with kids is good practice for having conversations with adults? Or I think so. Yeah. Because fortunately, unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't change. To me, it's it's more about being there. We live in a very fact-driven, information-driven situation. Am I going to get something out of this conversation? And I think part of the emphasis, at least in the book and what I've learned, especially with being with children, is just to be there. And it doesn't matter so much what the conversation's about, or I'm trying to get my point across, or they're trying to tell me something. Because a lot of times, you know, they'll be telling a story and they go into fantasy, right? And then you join the fantasy and they'll say, I'm just pretending, you know? Yeah. And so all of a sudden you go, oh, I thought we were pretending. That's not true. And so all of a sudden they want to be serious, right? Yeah. So it kind of goes back and forth. And so I think it really helps you open your mind, you know, and, and kind of realize you know, what's going on and play with reality from that point of view. You're right. It doesn't change as an adult. You just want to be listened to exactly. and you want to be taken, yeah. not seriously, but taken at the value of what you're saying. One of my children is four and a half and really like going from that age where they're really exploring the world and, and communicating and learning and there's a sense of just wonderment and also sometimes fear. You realize like, oh, this, this person's being formed and how are they going to go into the world? A lot of these elements, I mean, it doesn't change that much. You know, you just know more and you have more experiences, but that sort of seed or that kind of consciousness is there. So you realize as a parent, how you're relating to them, how you're communicating, is important, not only about skills you're trying to teach them, like listening, but also just as, as a person, you're teaching them how to actually relate to the world and how to relate yeah. to other people. And I think that's part of the pressure of being a parent because you realize this is happening yeah. and you're tired and maybe you don't want to do it at that moment. But you're communicating something you're regardless. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you're communicating, oh, this is how you should behave when you're tired. That's all being absorbed, right? As a dad, do you, maybe it's a naive question, but do you also struggle with things like tiredness and being frustrated or aggravated? I think we all deal with. I mean, I think it's just part of being a human being. If you're in a role of being a sort of spiritual practitioner, 
It's dealing with sort of raw situations. It's what you face. So it's not so much, I think, manipulating those. It's just sort of how to relate to them. If you are tired, you're tired. So it's not like you're making it up. At the same time, how do you handle it? Yeah. And then how do you learn from it and saying, oh, I could have been a little more open or, you know, I should have maybe changed the conversation or maybe I shouldn't have. If you're tired and don't want to talk, maybe just hold your children. For me, you know, that is kind of meditation in action, right? Because if you think about it like in meditation, you try to develop compassion or love or empathy or mindfulness. And so here it is. It's right in front of you, right? Yeah. And here's the opportunity. Right. But I think what happens with me and I think a lot of people, not just with Buddhism, but like with other spiritual traditions is you read or you, I, for instance, I'm meditating and I'm all about like letting go of ego and like <laughs> right. being super, uh-huh. you know. Uh-huh. And then, of course, I get That's aggra- so easy. <laughs> yeah, then I'm off the cushion. I, I get in some some aggravating situation. And instead of being like, oh, I can practice this, I'm like, oh, I have to get back to meditating because that's where I'm a good person. You know, right. how do you bring the meditation aspect into action with your family, which always seems like the hardest people to practice with? One of the things that I've been working with and also in meditation is feeling. So how do you feel like you feel something? And I think rather than just feeling bad about it, how do you connect with that feeling? That's where you learn. So if you're there for that moment, then you can actually improve or learn or develop from it. And I think when you just try to separate out how you feel to the idealized version of who you are, yes, you know, and then that gets tricky. And so I feel like that's part of the, the challenge is that the rawness is kind of opening up and, and you realize, oh, maybe you're not as advanced as you thought you were. That's okay. like Lama Joshua over here <laughs> right, and then right, there's right. like the real one over right. there. Well, it's just more to practice, right? (laughs) Yeah. When my kids were younger, not sleeping very much, you know, they're really close in age and it was really tight situation in our house. I remember someone told me a quote that your dad said that the bad news is you're falling, there's no parachute and there's no way to stop. Right. And the good news is there's no ground. Right. And that, I'm pretty sure I just ruined that quote. I get the idea. (laughs) (laughs) You get the idea. And it was your dad who said it. Um, But- I felt like that was the most helpful advice or concept that, yeah, you're falling. It feels out of control, but you're not going to hit anything. It's just the nature of being alive. You're creating your own stress or you're creating your own context. So there is a situation where you you were in and you thought it was really intense and later you realized, why did I think it was so intense? Right. And it's like how you're relating to it. Like that teaching that probably uh, my father was giving is really about how to handle space realizing that there really is nothing supporting you in some ways. And that, that can be terrifying. Within parenting, there's a sense of you can read all the books you want, but at the same time, you know, there you are. Yeah. Right? And and there's just sort of this freefall happening. At the same time, you know, there's nothing going to catch you. There's no moment of impact where it's all going to fall apart. It'll just be what it is. It is exactly. Yeah. yeah. How did having kids change fundamentally your practice at all or how you approach your practice? Very much. As every parent, it's such an amazing a moment when they're born, especially, and then that's happening. And I think that it helped in terms of like a personal point of view of really having to care and, and, and through your life and what you're doing in your life really had a different depth to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was always had a lot of responsibility from that point of view, but this really changed it and deepened it. And it also makes you just much more human and understanding and sympathetic. And yeah. so that was a a big change. And also just on a sort of a spiritual level, it was like, oh, these, these are children that you want to pass things on to and you, you want the wisdom and tradition and insights that you receive. Now you have a, a way to really kind of pass that on. So that really changes in terms of time. All of a sudden, the future 
takes on a different element. Yeah. Before maybe you didn't care as much, but now you really do care about yeah. things are going to be, how the world's going to be, and what your actions are going to be. For me, having sons and realizing that you are communicating things to them no matter what you do, you are communicating ways to behave, mm-hmm. made me realize that there was a lot about me as a person that I had received from my background and who I was that I needed to think about and work on so I didn't recreate those patterns with my own kids. It was like a fire under me to start dealing with my own stuff so I didn't, you know, ruin another generation of (laughs) styles. Right. Well, yeah, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know if I'm successful, but at least I'm working on it. Did you ever think about wanting to remove your family from this setting sun world and Mm -hmm. finding a place in a less materialistic society? What I've realized is, you know, you can't really run anywhere, hide anywhere. I remember when I was in Tibet in the early 2000s, I did a trip there and I was teaching and, you know, nobody had cell phones, right? And then I went back three years later and, you know, half half the monks had cell phones. And we were in the middle of nowhere. I mean, really nowhere. And all of a sudden, you know, these towers were up somewhere and, you know, we were in these big pujas and the people were on their cell phones. So I was thinking, oh, if you can't hide in Tibet, where are you going to hide, right? Right. The idea of sort of running away is, is a nice fantasy to keep up. And there's probably places you can still go and, and do that. But more and more, it takes a level of stress just to keep it out. There's definitely a level of deep concern. And as we all do, especially these days with all the, I think, a level of fear. Yeah. I would say something that is as much a concern sort of of the time is just a lot a feeling of hopelessness or despair. What's the world going to be? and how to keep up their spirit and how to keep up yeah. their own energy, what we call wind horse, yeah. sort of the sense of one's own personal uh, dignity. On one hand, of course you don't want children falling into despair and yeah. hopelessness. On the other hand, one of the teachings I think is abandon hope, meaning don't just hold out this fantasy that it'll get better, but actually deal with the situation where it is. Exactly. You know, it's complicated when you have kids because are they equipped to deal with the situation as it is? Mm-hmm. Are any of us, you know, of course that's like a huge struggle as a person alive is mm-hmm. to really be in the moment and say, not I hope it gets better, but this is what it is and what can I do, if anything, to improve it? No, that's a very good point. I mean, I feel like there's sort of trying to avoid it, getting overwhelmed by it. There's another path. How are we going to deal with it? How are we going to go forward? How are we going to work with it? So that's certainly the message and tradition of, you know, where I come from, the Shambhala tradition is really dealing with warriorship. It's dealing with the notion of bravery. How do you actually engage in, in kind of more of a fearless way? And, you know, being a parent, you're dealing with bravery, you're dealing with these elements and shift the trajectory. You want to do the fatherly questionnaire? Sure. What is your name? Sakyami Parambache. Can you unpack the two of them are titles and one Actually, of them? yeah, I mean, I have Mipam, which is a Tibetan word that means unconquerable. It's a given name. The title that I have is called Sakyong. Sa is Tibetan for earth. Chong means to protect, so it's called earth protector. And Rinpoche means? Rinpoche is a title in Tibetan that is used honorifically for teachers and for people carrying on spiritual traditions. Occupation. Teacher, earth protector. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty cool occupation. Age. 54. How old are your children? Two and a half, four and a half, and six. What are their names? The youngest one is called uh, Jason Zidrin, Jason Yudra, Jason Drukmo is the oldest one. They all have the same first name? Yeah, we, we have a sort of honorific title for, they're all... Girls, and so yeah. we have a title for them. Jetson is a Tibetan word that is like honorific in terms of their sort of their role as a spiritual person. 
Are they named after anyone in particular? Our family descends from the legendary Gesar Vling, who was a great arthurial kind of figure in Tibet. So our family descends from Gesar Vling. He was a great Tibetan king. On your side? That's right, my father's side. So these are names that are often associated with his family and his warriorship and uh, some of his ministers. And your wife is also from a, a lauded Dharmic family. Yeah, she comes from the Ripa lineage, which is a ancient spiritual tradition within uh, the Nyingma form of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And her father is Eminence Namke Trimirabache. And they also practice what we call Gesar dances. So they're like spiritual dances. So we both have a really deep connection with the Gesar tradition. How did you guys meet? We met in India. And she was performing what we call Lingdro dances. And they usually go on for three days. Yeah. And so I was at a big gathering in South India in, near Mysore, where I was uh, engaged in a ceremony with His Holiness uh, Panarabache, who was the head of the Nyingma lineage at that point. So with several thousand uh, monastics and uh, Tibetan lay people, and there was the dancers, and we were celebrating, and that sort of her family and her um, people from her village were performing this three-day dance, and then we met. Did she know who you were, and you knew who she was, or it was just like, who is that cool dancer? And she's like, who is that cool llama? Yeah, kind of. That's <laughs> If you want to sum it up, that's probably. <laughs> Do you guys have different styles of raising your kids, or is yours more... I don't know, Western or... My style is becoming more like her style. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it goes, yeah. (laughs) Do you have any cute nicknames for your kids? I generally call them Jetson. But how do they know which one you're talking to? By the tone. Let's hear it. (laughs) There's Jetson, there's Jetson, and there's Jetson. (laughs) And they know. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. Because they'll be in a room and I'll I'll say and they'll they'll know which one I'm talking about. Wait, say it once more. (laughs) There's Jetson. Okay, the youngest? Yeah. Jetson. The middle. Right, and Jetson. The oldest. Yeah. What do they call you? Abba. Is that Tibetan for? Like father or daddy or something. Like yeah. That. How often do you see them? When I'm not traveling, obviously we see them every day. And yeah. We're with them. And then we just went back, back to Nepal and they were there visiting with my um, wife's side of the family, her mother and, and yeah. um, his eminence and so forth. Silly question, but when am I ever going to ask it again? You also do things like grocery shopping and the normal secular things. I saw in your book that you were contemplating the nature of interaction when you saw a bunch of people doing the automated checkout. We like to try to do sort of normal family things, and they like to, they like to try to go to the grocery store. And so when we can do those things, we do those things. Yeah. It's not like somehow not appropriate for you as the earth protector. Good to to protect the grocery store. (laughs) (laughs) Describe yourself as a father in three words. Strong, caring, and then I also say patient. Describe your father in three words. I would say spacious, attentive, and I would say spacious. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of space. What are your strengths as a father? Humor, I guess. Just trying to try to be there for them that way. What are your weaknesses as a father? Space. Not like trying to control the situation or something like that. Relatedly, what is your biggest regret as a father? I think being able, not able to sort of be there as much, probably, because I have to travel. Yeah. How, how much do you travel? Well, it depends on year to year. Yeah. But I'm traveling 40% of the year, roughly. What is your favorite activity to do with your kids? That is your special father and kid thing. Abba and kid. Abba, Abba. and Jetsons. You're getting the idea. <laughs> <laughs> What they love to do is uh, go get stuffies. What's a stuffy? Like little uh, stuffed dolls and what? ice cream. Stuffies and ice cream. Kind of in that order. What's your favorite stuffy? 
Or is, are all stuffy and permanent, so. <laughs> Especially these days. Yeah. Because <laughs> you have to get a new one. What has been the moment you have been most proud of your kids as a parent? First day of school was, was a big deal. Six years old is first grade? Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, first, second grade, no. We also have, recently we were doing this very long ceremony where you have to sit still for a long time. And uh, usually I don't have them do them, but they all came in and wanted to sit. So it was like three, four hours of sitting there. And, uh, you know, they would get up and walk around a little bit, but they more or less sat through the whole thing. So we were very happy about that. What heirloom did your father give to you, if any? Uh, quite a few. There's different things he had brought from Tibet and different ritual items, different statues. He gave me a, a very ancient um, text on philosophy that, mm-hmm. uh, that I hold very dearly. What heirlooms do you want to leave to your children? Shambhala. <laughs> and we call it enlightened society, how you can live communally. And, I mean, that seems to be the most precious thing. Yeah. Normally, it's like a watch. <laughs> You're like, enlightened society. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that would be good, huh? <laughs> Describe the dad special for dinner. Well, they like sort of children's food, but we, we usually make uh, momos, which is a Tibetan dish. It's like dumplings. Yeah. So they love momos. So. Do you have a special momo recipe? Yes. You'll have to try one day. (laughs) Are you religious and are you raising your children in that tradition? I'm not sure if I would call it religious, but (laughs) I guess that would be yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Hard yes. What's a mistake you made growing up that you want to ensure your children do not repeat? Start early. Yeah, I would say start early in terms of um, kind of what they're doing. Yeah. Because the more you get used to it, the better, I think. You started at 12. Is that considered early or late? Well, I think it's early-ish. Yeah. My circumstances were different. How do you make sure your kids know you love them? I don't worry about it too much. It's more just being there for them, yeah. And not part of the questionnaire, but because I feel like you probably think about this a lot, what would you say to fathers out there who are listening to this about bringing your wisdom and what you've studied to fatherhood specifically? It's managing or learning or experiencing how to care when you're being a parent. That's sort of the main path how to care, either too much or too little, you know, whatever it may be. What you just listened to was a very intense interview for me because not only am I the host of the Fatherly Podcast and a dad, but I'm also a Buddhist and the Sakyung is my root lineage teacher. So I was kind of starstruck. For our next segment, I'm welcoming to the studio Josh Krish. Josh isn't just Fatherly Science Editor. He's also the Chabad rabbi serving the Ithaca College community. So what we normally call, oh, hey, science, today we're calling, oh, hey, God, and science. Hey, Josh. Hey, thanks for having me. One of the big questions I had with Isak Young, and you know, I'd love to ask you as well, is how do you balance your obligations spiritually with your obligations in this world? As a Buddhist, I've taken what's called the vow of refuge. So I've sought refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, which is the teachings, and the Sangha, which is a community. But... My family's still there, and I love them, and I don't want to run away from them either. How do you make that balance? It certainly isn't much different. I mean, most of my colleagues in the rabbinate don't also have regular jobs. I work full-time as, a, as the science editor at Fatherly, and that's not just an everyday regular rabbi job. I work in science and science writing as a journalist uh, every day. And then on the weekends, I'm, I'm managing a synagogue and running a, com- a Jewish community. So I don't think most people have that particular situation. Definitely, I, I understand this tension very well. In Jewish thought, uh, specifically in mystical Jewish thought, there's a concept that we call in Hebrew, Ratzah Veshov. 
Ratzavashov is supposed to characterize every single living thing, and that is the urge to be here in the physical world, interacting with physical things in our families, in our jobs, in our food, and everything. And then there's the urge to leave the physical world behind, to shed the physical bonds, and to become one with a greater spiritual being. And our understanding is that everything goes through this, that the definition of life is a bouncing back and forth of the desire to engage in the physical and aspire to the spiritual. And the way that we have it is that our souls are programmed to want to aspire to the spiritual, but God wants us to aspire to the physical. And so there's a tension between what we are commanded to do and what we naturally should want to do, that the natural urge is to be more spiritual, when in fact the right thing to do is to be less spiritual, which puts a very interesting spin on the philosophy. Our philosophical system is that God created a physical world for us to make better, and that in order to empower us to be able to do that, he gave us the constant urge to not be part of it. The constant urge to transcend is what empowers us to make the best of this world while we're stuck here. So as a dad, you just had a, a kid five weeks ago, right? And that's your second kid. How are you balancing these pursuits? The classic Jewish way to do it is to have moments of meditation or moments of time alone where you're able to focus on your mission in the world and the fact that there's something greater than the table you see in front of you or the food that you see in front of you. And then a lot of time invested in making the world a better place using that energy that you gained from those moments of clarity. Mm -hmm. So you use these moments of clarity to empower yourself to make the world better. You spread it around. Yeah. And that's the theory is that is that what we believe is that God wants us to make the world better. And that we wouldn't have the motivation to do that if we didn't have higher spiritual aspirations. So the spiritual aspirations empower us to do what we're actually supposed to do, which is much more mundane on the surface. It's interesting. There's a Buddhist slogan, regard all obstacle as path, which I think about all the time as a father. And basically, it's a, when you're presented with a challenge, it's an opportunity to practice. As a dad who's trying to balance being with his family, working, and also pursuing my own spiritual journey... When I can't practice, that's also part of the path. And I feel like there's an intersection You there. mentioned that when you can't practice, it's also the path. We have a, a classic Hasidic story about this. I'll give you the most brief form of it because it's just a hilarious one. I tell it all the time. It's known as Josh's bucket story <laughs> among the students of Ithaca College where I'm their rabbi. There were once two Hasidic rebbies who were in prison. Hasidic rebbies were in prison all the time for doing terrible things like studying Torah or practicing their religion in Tsarist Russia. Uh, in any case, two rabbis found themselves in prison. In the center of the prison, there was a bucket. And you know what people did in the bucket in the center of prison? That was the toilet. And there is a very important Jewish law that you are not allowed to pray in front of a toilet. You're not allowed to mention the name of God when you're in front of something disgusting. So the first rabbi starts crying, I'm not going to get to pray today. And the second rabbi says, you don't understand. Today, it is a mitzvah. It's a good deed not to pray. Today, you are fulfilling your purpose in this world by not praying. Right. Every obstacle definitely is a path. That's, that's absolutely the way that I see things too. As far as balancing, I'll only say this. In Jewish thought, the tradition is that the rabbi, the greatest rabbis of the generation always had families and always had jobs outside of the rabbinate. The, the idea that is very prominent in Catholicism of dedicating yourself only to God and not engaging so much in physical world or in family is foreign to Jewish thought. Um, in, in Jewish theology, the notion that one could try to be responsible for a relationship with the infinite and not know how to handle a five-year-old doesn't sound right to us. 
So uh, the this tension of, of how do I balance my spiritual obligations with my family life, or how do I balance my rabbinate with my secular job, is the story of the Jewish people. The greatest rabbis who wrote the Talmud were all farmers and all had many children. Yeah, it was a night job. Yeah, and they, they figured it out. The Torah, the greatest side hustle in history. That's right, the side <laughs> hustle. Uh, well, that's the thing, though. We don't see it as a side, as a side hustle. We, we see it as the main thing, but the main thing sometimes only takes up five minutes of your day. Yeah. Sometimes the thing that you spend five minutes of your day on is the main purpose of your existence and the rest of your day is what supports that but uh, that's a mindset issue as far as the balance it's something that our tradition is very attuned to when you're making time for your family you are making time for yourself that's what that does and when you make time for yourself you're allowing yourself to help your family are kids spiritual are they spiritual by nature when do they become spiritual? You're making me switch hats very quickly. So off with the rabbi hat and on with the scientist hat, right? Can kids experience spirituality? There's a considerable body of evidence on it. I've spoken to two experts. There's Jesse Fox and Daniel Gutierrez. Uh, Jesse Fox is at Stetson University. Gutierrez is at the College of William & Mary. There are two experts who have basically dedicated their careers to publishing studies on child psychology, religion, spirituality, prayer, and how the whole thing crosses over. They essentially say that there's a component of spirituality that's innate to every child that you see in studies children automatically have, but that the shape that spirituality takes is entirely dependent on where they live, what time in history, what their parents are like, and what they're told by, by leaders. So a child, a child has a goldfish, and the goldfish tragically dies. The child is going to feel a loss, and the child is going to search for what happened to my fish. Now, if the child's being raised by somebody who wants the child to grow up in an atheist tradition, then the person will, I assume, explain to the child that nothing happens to the fish next and that the value of the fish's existence was was uh, the perpetual swim uphill, right? Sisyphus. Yeah. Sisyphus. Sisyphus. <laughs> <laughs> if that person is of one of the theistic traditions, they're going to probably describe a heaven and a god. And I'm sure you can fill in much better than me what somebody of the Buddhist tradition would explain to a child who lost a goldfish. But in any case, a child would project that spiritual yearning for what happens next on to whatever religion you give them. So if you were to go back to ancient Rome, the children would have talked about Hades. If you go back to, if you go to hunter-gatherer tribes, they'll talk about their local religions. So it seems that scientifically speaking, spirituality's specific form is very much taught, but the pursuit of an answer to spiritual questions is very much innate. That makes sense. In Buddhism, they often talk about the harmful patterns that we create as we grow and the openness of a child to the world. So are children better at spirituality than adults are? Maybe. The researchers I spoke to told me that as far as they know, every faith tradition has the idea of returning to the faith of a child or returning to the simple spirituality of a child. That this is supposed to be an ideal for everybody. We have it too. We, we have a Hebrew term for it, chanoch, lenar, alpi, darko, that every person should try to pursue their childlike faith. Yeah. And I know Christianity has this too, returning to the faith of a child. So it's very, very present. But what's so interesting, and it just occurs to me now, right? You're saying the impulse to spirituality is innate, but the specific type of spirituality is learned. And all of these learned type of spiritualities privilege that moment in the child before the specific format is learned, which seems like an argument for a sort of unspecified spirituality. The way that we deal with it in the Jewish tradition is that there's an undercurrent of passionate spiritual seeking that a child has, and it hasn't taken a constructive form, so you can't do anything with it. A child wants to understand, a child wants to be one with something bigger, 
and a child has no idea how to express that yearning. That yearning is very powerful, but without expression is useless. Mm. So the idea of returning to the passion and the force of I must pursue spirituality that a child has the urgency is very valuable, but shapeless urgency, maybe not. At least that's how we deal with it. Um, I think in Buddhism, we would talk about there being basic human goodness, a sort of unsullied Buddha nature, which through our actions becomes more and more blocked and more obscured. And part of our path is to block those obscurations and get back to that state of basic human goodness. You know, why don't you convert to Buddhism? I'll go back to Judaism. We'll call it a day. I'm, I'm not always sure that we'd clearly notice all the differences. <laughs> yeah. When you talk about obscurations, we have a word for it in Hebrew that we describe exactly the same way called klippa, which means a shell or an obscuring. I think a lot of people, especially those that don't have a whole lot of respect for spirituality or for religion in general, tend to equate spiritual thinking with magical thinking, that it's, a, that it's like fairy tales or like right. fiction. Make-believe. Right, like make-believe. They're not right, and not because we're spiritual people who don't see our life's pursuits as fiction, but simply because there's an entirely different way of approaching magical thinking and spiritual thinking. Magical thinking is much more like the god of the gaps. You might have heard that phrase before. Something happened, and there's a mysterious magician who made it happen, and I can tell you a story about how A connects to B. By no standard is that spiritual thinking. That's pure, that's fairy tale thinking. And sometimes it's true. Sometimes those fairy tales are real. Sometimes in science we see such things that we want to know how A happened. We know that A caused B. We want to know how B happened. And when we can find a C that explains the connection between the two, it almost seems magical. But that entire genre of magical thinking is not at all what spirituality is. I'm sure it's not what it is for you either, trying to solve why things are and what they happen. That's not what it's about for me or for, I think, anybody who cares about this. The difference is the magical thinking is very much solving a problem. It's almost transactional, but that spiritual thinking is about seeking enlightenment by recognizing the places where we have gaps we can't fill. And instead of forcing ways to fill them with the rational mind, right, with the rational mind, pursuing it with something that's not quite rational. Yeah, that's not the same as magical thinking. It's not the same as fairy tales. I also think that to some degree, even in adults, there's probably some maybe unfortunate overlap between organized religion and magical thinking. My impression is that if we were to talk to people who invest a lot of time in spirituality or in religion, they would all come to the conclusion that there's very little overlap. But I think if we spoke to amateurs, people who dabble in religion in one way or another, there'd be a lot of overlap. Certainly among my students, there's a lot of overlap between magical thinking and, and religion. My mom always makes fun of me for being a boo-Jew because I was born Jewish. You but prefer a different Jewish. term, right? Yeah, but I think a better term is Judas. Judas. <laughs> <laughs> well, Josh, this was unlike any other Oh Hey Science it's and very likely to get cut. <laughs> I hope it doesn't get I am an intactivist, so I hope it does not get cut. Thanks for listening to the Fatherly Podcast. That's our show. Sandy Smallins is our executive producer. Dave Savage is our engineer. Our theme music is by Kyle Forrester, with some help by Augie Heerenstein. Make sure you tune in next week when I'll be speaking with the broadcaster, provocateur, and father of four, Glenn Beck. And if you like the podcast, subscribe on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein, and that's it for me. Unless Augie has anything to say. Augie? Boo-boo-boo-boo-pee-pee. <laughs> <laughs> the penis is peeing. <laughs>